Welcome to our Advice and Insights podcast, a special series on the case for dividend growth, investing in a post-crisis world. What we're doing here is a series of talks, including some excerpts from the book itself to help capture the investment philosophy known as dividend growth investing that we have made a cornerstone to our practice at the Bonson Group. The book, The Case for Dividend Growth, has just come out and represents my best work and best case and argument for the investment methodology that we believe is at the cornerstone of a truly efficient client experience. We look forward to getting your feedback through this Advice and Insights podcast on the dividend growth orientation. Chapter 9, To This End We Work, Avoiding Dividend Cuts. Thus far, I've attempted in these talks to make the case for why we believe dividend growth to be such a positive thing and a a, uh, uh, worthwhile methodology in accessing the stock market. And and for, you know, more astute people, there is a sense in which you can say, well, no, duh. I mean, we like the idea of a dividend. That's a positive thing. And we like the idea of growth. That's a positive thing. And so to the extent you've given us a little more application of that, where some of these advantages lie, we may not have thought about with compounding as accumulators, with uh, protecting our withdrawal stream, with uh, the embedded quality of the companies, with hedging against inflation. There's you know a little new information there, but you haven't addressed the fundamental sine qua non of the whole thing which is the fact that the dividends are indeed growing. There's a presupposition in the argument that I am very open to being picked at, even though I'm the one making the argument. And that is, well, hey, what if the dividends stop growing? What if the dividends that indicate health of a company prove to be a facade and, and they start cutting and the stock price drop becomes more permanent? And so forth and so on. And and it is a criticism that I wish more people would render because I have an answer for it and I intend to give it to you right now. But it also is a uh, intelligent prima facie response and so many of the other prima facie responses are not intelligent. <laughs> and so this one I kind of like better as an argument and yet I believe it is one that we can easily contend with. Let me say this. I think that this is a reasonable argument against passive dividend growth investing. Put differently, there are a number of methodologies out there in the mutual fund space or particularly the ETF space that attempt to index a a product out of a dividend growth methodology that just simply looks to the past and says, okay, well, these companies have been good dividend growers. Let's uh, take those companies, put them in a basket and call it an index of dividend growth. And there is a sense in which I would be open to the argument that that doesn't cut it, that the need for sustainable dividend growth is unindexable as a matter of backward-looking optics, that this is a strategy that requires active management. And I'm going to explain why, and I'm going to explain how indeed the avoidance of dividend cuts, which is a sin qua non to the whole investment methodology, but in fact can be achieved. So hopefully I've given you enough candor about the vulnerability of the thesis, and now we're going to deal with that with that very thesis. Let me, let me kind of tell you 
the way we approach this subject, okay? At the end of the day, we do not believe that a high-yielding stock that has an attractive dividend as a percentage of its current stock price is necessarily a good thing. And it's something I'm going to talk about more in a future talk uh, with, with one of our later chapters. But the problem a lot of people run into is they run their screens off of high dividends and high dividend payout ratios, meaning, oh, this must be a great dividend payer because they're paying 80% of their profits in the form of a dividend or sometimes 100%. And guess what? Sometimes over 100%. And, and I will argue that the very first mistake people make is starting there. And the very first uh, remedy is to start where we need to start, which is at the free cash flow generation of the company. That the company having a healthy and organic generation of free cash flow, that it has consistency to it, that it has a non-cyclicality to it, and, and that therefore the dividend policy you see is coming out of a free cash flow. And you can look to earnings as well. What per dividend payout ratios are calculated as a payout of, of earnings. But the problem with earnings, of course, is that they're not the same as cash. And, and there can be accounting shenanigans in a more uh, malignant term. And there can be accounting complexity, to use a more benign term. But nevertheless, accounting can either legitimately or illegitimately create a distinction between free cash flow and earnings. And so I think that to just get down to brass tacks and avoid the complexity around where earnings uh, vary from cash generation because of balance sheet activity, amortizations, interest payment, accruals, markdowns, various uh, balance sheet bookmaking, bookkeeping, et cetera, I think you can stick to the purest function in the accounting world and indeed in business operations, and that is the free cash flow that is being generated. And so we want to start with companies in their cash flow generation. And this is where you have to get this big distinction between starting with the yield and starting with the cash flow. Stock prices do not tell you anything about cash flow, and they don't tell you anything about cash flow coverage. And what cash flow coverage means is, let's say you're paying out a dividend of 50 cents and you're generating a dollar, you have two times coverage of your dividend. And let's say you're paying out a dollar and you have 50 cents of free cash flow, it means you only have 50% cash flow coverage, 0.5, right? The stock price isn't going to tell you any of that. The stock price does not measure or embed the cash flow itself, whereas a yield is by definition a byproduct of a stock price. It's the 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 uh, yield is the uh, the stock price is the denominator in the calculation of the yield. And so, if a company is paying out five dollars in a dividend, it's a hundred dollars stock. The yield is five percent because five divided by one hundred equals five percent. And so, you learn about a yield out of a stock price, but you learn about cash flow out of doing homework, out of studying, out of looking under the hood. That's why I believe it requires active approach. I read from the book here, the stock price is heavily influenced by sentiment on any given day. It's heavily affected by macro conditions. Interest rates in the economy impact P.E. ratios. Headline events and noise impact daily pricing. 
For our purposes here, we're trying to determine the sustainability of a dividend and the likelihood it will be increased in the future. Ours is an evaluation of the strength of the company's defense, their balance sheet, their ability to withstand difficulty and other factors, but also its offense, growth strategy, free cash flow, market share, and so on. No part of the future dividend payment is revealed in the stock price. Transcending noise is a very good idea for almost all serious students of the stock market, but it's particularly important in the fundamental exercise regarding the dividend's health. A couple of my favorite paragraphs in this chapter and indeed in the entire book. So the book elaborates much more in this chapter on the way that we have to objectively uh, analyze the dividend. And we do that looking at the dividend payout ratio, the free cash flow, the earnings consistency, the balance sheet of the company, you know, the indebtedness is such a tremendously significant consideration and understanding how vulnerable a dividend may be when a company runs into hard times. And again, reading from the book, the quantifiable and economic metrics are pivotally important to know, study, and analyze. Yet even they are not as important as the cultural propensity, the willingness to protect and grow the dividend. This criterion requires judgment of management and likely represents the single most neglected of all stock analysis criteria. And so I talk about how CEOs that are deal junkies are out uh, flopping around with their firm's balance sheet, buying companies, doing M&A that could very well jeopardize a solid dividend payer. Now, that's not to say that M&A is always a bad idea, and sometimes a dividend can be protected with a good synergistic merger or acquisition. But we've seen a lot of great dividend payers threaten their own dividend capacity through poorly uh, structured um, merger and acquisition activity. But even apart from the uh, potential for M&A dysfunction, there are many other cultural maladies in the C-suite we have to look for. C-suite operators, CEOs, CFOs that are untruthful, that are reckless, that are poor communicators – that, that have egos that, that prize growth for the sake of growth over the whole idea of capital return to shareholders. So let me, let me close with another reading from this chapter to tie a bow around just how important this subject is. Perhaps the caveat that past performance is no guarantee of future results need not contradict this obvious fact. Companies that have a rich history of dividend growth provide a good view into management culture. I cannot guarantee that a company has grown their dividend for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 straight years will continue to grow it, but I have strong evidence that they want to. In conclusion, the fact that dividend cuts, especially when resulting in an aggregate decline in portfolio income year over year, would jeopardize this entire book's thesis. But as active, diligent, meticulous, coherent process around evaluating A firm's ability and willingness to maintain and grow their dividend starts with real-life economic analysis and includes qualitative, cultural, and intuitive reasoning. The results of such a process ought to be a highly defensive portfolio that avoids the perils of dividend cuts on an individual basis and therefore across a whole portfolio. And that results in a growing dividend stream that leads to an appreciating asset base creating successful outcomes for investors in both the accumulation and withdrawal stages of life. 
Chapter 10, Clearing Up Confusions, High Yield versus Growing Dividends. This is a chapter that I felt was really important to include in the book, and the discussion I want to have with you now is meant to sort of preemptively deal with a confusion, with a uh, misunderstanding, but also sometimes with, I think, a flawed argument used against the idea of dividend growth. And it is basically the equivocation of uh, high-yield companies with growing dividend companies. And it becomes very important for the clarity of my argument to delineate between the two. Because often you will look at a company that is a high-yielder and disastrous things end up happening. And they will say, see, you like this whole dividend thing, but look what's happened to this company and this company and this company. And it becomes an effectively a straw man argument because it is not at all the argument that my book or my position or the philosophy they advocate for represents. So to restate this, I am not arguing for high dividend companies, let alone uh, even worse, high yield companies, and there is a big difference. I am arguing for growing dividend companies. And so, as I say in the book, in a spirit of graciousness, I will assume that much of this has all been of the genuine confusion variety. It's a straw man argument all the same, but often I'm confident that the intentions are not sinister. Um, I, I, I think that there are some folks that just genuinely don't know better, and that's who I want to speak to here, not those that may be purposely uh, equivocating and, and kind of misrepresenting the position, okay? This is not mere semantics, all right, the difference between a dividend stock and a growth of dividend stock is an ocean wide. And I want to talk about a kind of big dividend or high yield company. Um, and obviously, I'm not referring to a high yield bond. I'm not referring to a company that is flawed in the credit markets. They have uh, some questionable financial metrics. They have a lot of risk in their income statement or a lot of risk in their balance sheet. So the bond ratings give them a lower credit score which causes them to have to pay higher interest in the bond market to borrow money. What I'm referring to are companies that have a high dividend yield and that very well could be growing dividend companies that have a high yield that we would like. We're not against high yield. It's just that that's not what the book is about. Some high yield companies, meaning they pay a high dividend as a percentage of their current stock price, may very well be in the category of growth of dividend company. But very often, a high-yield company is one that, just to use very basic math, it was $100 stock, they paid a $4 dividend, so you have a 4% yield, but then the company gets in all kinds of trouble and the stock drops to 50 bucks, but they're still paying a $4 dividend, or at least for now they are, so four divided by 50 is 8%. You go, hey, look, I gosh, I love this stock. It's paying an 8% dividend. Well, that is what we would call an accidental high yielder. It backed into the math of a high yield. And though there are plenty of exceptions and sometimes even opportunities out of those situations, they very, very frequently result in dividend cuts. They, re they are reflecting a lot of problems. It's not too often. I'm using a kind of extreme example of a stock price dropping 50%. But again, the, the issue there is that we're talking about yield as a function of math and assuming that is a good thing in and of itself when we don't know enough of the math. We have to know what the free cash flow of the company was 
and and why the dividend has not been going higher. The yield is not the same thing. The yield is a multiplication equation. The dividend is a cash amount, and we want to see that trajectory of cash growth over time. That's the objective of this investment philosophy. And so we do want high-quality companies that have a nice, attractive starting yield. Uh, you could call it a high yield in the sense that we prefer it be higher than what the S&P 500 is. But then the fundamental ingredient is we want a high growth of yield. And we think that those things provide that potential for total return. So in a sense, we are not as attracted to the traditional aristocrats, which is the term used for companies that are faithful as can be growers, but have brutally low yields. We want to start with an attractive dividend for the buyer who's going to get that kind of current income and potential for future income based on the starting point. And yet we're not also looking for those high yield stocks that might be in the ninth or 10th decile of income level and uh, would have a very difficult time growing their income. Uh, What we are looking for instead is a sweet spot, which very admittedly, is a limited universe. That's why this is a hard game. That's why this is a difficult and challenging objective that we don't think can be easily and passively executed. And I will add, as an indictment of my own industry, it's also why most people don't do it, because it takes work. Anyone can find high yielders and anyone can find aristocrats, but to find attractive starting yielders that are going to be aristocratically growing their income, that's tough to do. And so we have to make a distinction as to what exactly it is we're looking for. Generally speaking, we prefer, as I said, companies that have a starting yield when we're at the point of our purchase that is higher than the S&P 500. And generally speaking, we like to purge companies that don't have a minimum uh, five years history of at least 5% per year dividend growth. Then we have to look to the sustainability of the dividend around their payout ratio, the balance sheet, the cyclicality of earnings. We have to look to their free cash flow, its consistency, its trajectory. We have to then qualitatively assess, do we understand the business? Do we like the business? Does the business model lend itself to transparency and comprehensibility? Or is it such a complicated mess of a business where you guys remember Enron and its famous uh, blow-up nearly 20 years ago, not only did people misunderstand the business, they really had very little chance of being able to understand it because of the complexity and opaqueness. We want to understand and analyze management's culture, the inclinations for dividends, their governance. And then idiosyncratically, you want to know what are the catalysts to growth in the company, and is there an underappreciated story here? Is there a value may not be being appreciated by the market. It's very bottom-up. It's very research-driven. It's very evidence-based. And I believe that the philosophy of dividend growth, reading from the book, is inherently bottom-up. So that uh, represents the distinction that we need to highlight. This idea, you'll hear it sometimes in the media or hear it sometimes from a critic, that, well, you know, this dividend stuff is just bond proxies. And they'll say the utility sector, the REITs or telecom, they're just kind of bond proxies. When interest rates go up, they do uh, poorly. And when interest rates go down, they do all right. That is not the story of dividend growth. We are not looking 
with dividend growth investing to buy bond proxies, to buy mere fixed income surrogates. What we're looking for is that organic growth, and I read from the book, investing in companies that grow their profits, and from those profits grow the dividends that they pay to their shareholders. The book is not about companies with a high yield. It is not about proposing a grab for coupon, and it is not even about the mere accumulation of dividends. Our focus is on sustainable dividends, reflecting a high-quality company with a defensible business model. High-yield investing is for speculators or amateurs. Dividend growth investing is the essence of free enterprise. Thank you for listening to this Advice and Insights special podcast series covering the case for dividend growth. We hope you have found it enlightening and at least given you a taste of what it is we believe at the cornerstone of our investment process. Of course, we really do encourage you to buy a copy of The Case for Dividend Growth or reach out to us and maybe we'll get you a copy. We want you to read the whole book, not just merely rely on the podcast, but we do hope that this has given you a taste of the arguments that we make for dividend growth investing and given you a better foundation to understanding the investment methodology itself. Thank you for listening to Advice and Insights Podcast. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance, and it's not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.